1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the honor of speaking to Dr. Perla Guerrero about her book, Nuevo South, Asians, Latinas, Latinos, and the Remaking of Place, published by the University of Texas Press in 2017. Dr. Guerrero is Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of Maryland, College Park. Nuevo South explores the history of an ever-diversifying U.S. South by examining the mixed reactions refugees, immigrants, and migrants from different countries received in Arkansas in the latter half of the 20th century. Comparing the experience of Vietnamese, Cuban, and Mexican refugees and migrants, Dr. Guerrero demonstrates why we need a more nuanced understanding of how these groups and others changed the face of the South and its many regional racial thinkings. Dr. Guerrero, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Derek.
1: So I guess to kick things off, can you let our listeners know how you came to this project? Uh, Why did you become interested in it?
0: Yes, of course. So uh, I actually came to the project um, because I lived through this change in Arkansas or the South more broadly. So I grew up in suburban Los Angeles in a suburb called Pico Rivera. And I grew up there in a majority Mexican American community. And then when I was 16, my family moved to Arkansas. And as you might imagine, it was quite a change to go again from a majority Mexican American community in the greater Los Angeles area to a very not rural, but it wasn't urban the way Los Angeles is. And it also a very um, white community and one that also didn't have a lot of Latinos. So um, I usually tell this anecdote um, that I think really illustrates uh, essentially what led me to this project. So again, I was 16. I arrived um, to my junior year of high school. And as I was standing, standing in the lunch line This girl asked me, what are you? Now, this was the first time I'd heard this question, um, although I would hear it a lot of times after that. Um, So I thought she was being funny. So I asked her to guess and she guessed Vietnamese, Laotian, Indian from India, Native American, Eskimo, Filipina. I mean, she went off. she went through the globe trying to figure out what I was. And I looked at her and I said, I'm Mexican. And she had this blank expression on her face. And what I experienced and what I saw happen was that as the years progressed, people no longer asked me what I was, as there were more Latinos. And I also came to understand that the reason she asked whether I was Vietnamese or Laotian was because the non-Black and non-White group that existed in the area that lived there were Southeast Asians. So in her mind, if I wasn't Black and I wasn't White, then I must be this, this third option, which was Asian American. So I stayed in Arkansas, finished high school. I actually went to college at the University of Central Arkansas, which was two and a half hours southeast of the city I initially moved to, which is Fort Smith. And there, people thought I was white. And if I was confused as to how people could think I was Asian American, I was very confused as to why people would think that I was white. Since to my mind and my upbringing and my experiences in suburban LA, I was very much always cast as Mexican, which I am. So I was really confused by essentially the geography. How was it possible that I could move 1600 miles east and be constructed as a totally different person, someone someone with a totally different racial background. And essentially, that's what led me to graduate school. I really wanted to understand what the process was like. And in graduate school, I learned more about geography Uh, And racialization, how our ideas about race are informed by the very places in which we live, um, as well as how these changes um, are transformed over time. So I became both a historian and a geographer.
1: And I know for myself, kind of reading uh, about reading this book and kind of reading about your own personal experiences because you you uh, mentioned that in the book as well. And then just listening to it, you know, myself, I'm just I'm thinking, you know, that's somewhat of a kind of common thing that so many different people of color have to go through. I know myself, you know, I grew up in southwestern Virginia and, you know, I'm half black, half white. And down there, you know. Everyone just thinks I'm black. And then I moved up to, you know, the DC metropolitan area and suddenly my, my race is in flux. And it, it really threw me for a loop. I didn't know what to do. It was very confusing.
0: Yes, exactly. And I think this is, I mean, you're, you're getting to part of what I think is so important that we study the various things that we that we study because in our locations and places where we grew up, like in your case in Virginia, when people are there, they think it's that those experiences are what the rest of the United States is like. And the reality is that just by moving a couple of hours in in any direction, these ideas change. I had um, a friend in, in USC, I did my graduate work at the University of Southern California um, in Los Angeles. So I, I went back to the West Coast. And she's South Asian and in the East Coast, people thought she was Dominican, right? And we would laugh about it and, and make jokes. And, and sometimes it is really funny, right? The, the, the way that we see these changes occur, but I, but I was always interested in how, what's the process? How does this happen exactly? That these ideas that we think are so steadfast and so concrete actually shift quite rapidly uh, depending on, on the place, depending on where we are.
1: And in terms of you know how you study this, one of the kind of framing devices that you use is the nuevo south. You know it's in the title, and so for our listeners who are less familiar with this concept, can you explain what that is and sort of how you're using it?
0: Yes. So the nuevo south is uh, a term that I came to later in the book as I was working on it. Um, Essentially, it it does two things. So one, it gestures to a certain degree to the newness of the particular Latinos that I'm talking about. So Latinos moving to Arkansas, to South Carolina, to Mississippi, Georgia, etc., other parts of the South in the 1990s constituted a new migration a new migration pattern they were new communities they hadn't had the long history that latinos have in other places in the south like florida and texas and so i was really calling attention to that at the same time uh, i was i really wanted to make a, a connection to the literature on the new south that exists in in U.S. history, right? The New South as this moment, post-Civil War, uh, post-Reconstruction, when the South as a region is thought to be, um, is thought to offer a lot more opportunities, is supposed to be not, is supposed to not, is, a. am <laughs> sorry, I'm going to start over. The novel South, post-Reconstruction, <laughs> I'm going to start over again. The New South, post-Reconstruction, is imagined to be a place with a lot of opportunities that has, to a great extent, resolved the issues that led to the Civil War. But of course, in reality, that was more of a marketing tool or technique for boosters who wanted Northern investment. And so Nuevo South, in my case, links to that history because The South today might be imagined as more racially diverse as Latinos are growing demographic as are Asian-Americans and joining Native Americans and African-Americans, both of whom have long histories in the region uh, and places, again, like Arkansas, Georgia, Mississippi. But the region as a whole is actually still operating with older schemas that really exploit That diversity, on the one hand, um, but also exploit people as workers or deny people or communities of color political power. um, Issues uh, of inequality, like uh, who has access to voting and where and how difficult that is. So I'm really bringing these two ideas together in the in the term "Noble South." And um, if any listeners are wondering why I didn't choose to. Um, I don't know, I guess pay homage to the longstanding Latinx communities that exist in Florida and Texas. I was really interested in understanding the senior migration outside of those two states that have for such a long time been the sole focus of scholars. Anytime you talked about Latinx communities in the South, it was always Florida or Texas. When I first started doing my research and presenting at conferences, people thought, we're completely surprised that there were Latinos in Arkansas. And um, that's also what the title speaks to. Again, a kind of new formation, communities where there hasn't been that longstanding history. And then really explores what that means. How does that change affect not just the people who moved in, but the people that that have been there for a long time?
1: And when we're talking about, you know, as you just mentioned that, you know, you're looking at different places to tell this story. And one of the things that you set out uh, to discuss very early on, and we've kind of kind of touched on it already, is how both place and space uh, play a role in the racialization of different groups. And so could you tell our listeners, like, how does that happen? Uh, what is the sort of process that you kind of saw unfolding in Arkansas? And you you also differentiate between place and space, whereas some people might just think that they're kind of synonymous, but you really show that they're kind of different.
0: Yes. So, uh, as I mentioned before, I was trained both as a historian and a geographer and the, my discussion about place and space is really my geographer, uh, persona coming through. So, the difference between space and place is that place is a lot more specific. It has regional formations, it has local formations. It has a lot of specificity. And space is a little bit more broader, but space is also a social construction as is the rest of the world in which we live. So space often, um, you can think of it as a little bit more uh, unstructured but definitely produced. It helps to define uh, who we are, how we how we understand ourselves in the world. And then, then place is really that anchor. Um, so again, going back to my example of growing up in suburban Los Angeles, both suburban Los Angeles and Arkansas are places in the United States, right? And they're, they're imagined perhaps to maybe people who haven't grown up in the United States to be the same. They're part of the United States. They're part of America. But if you visited either of these places, you know that there are real differences and those differences are informed by the people that are there, um, the diversity of race and ethnicity, the economic backbone of, of again, both Los Angeles and Arkansas of um, cultures of food of uh, religious practices all those food religion culture religious practices all those inform the kind of place um that Los Angeles or Arkansas are so i again i think um like you mentioned earlier your your experience of moving from Virginia to the DC area anybody who has moved outside of The place where they grew up will experience a difference in places. There's a, there's always a a locality to the experiences that we have.
1: And I think for me, you know, it was a a sort of new concept for me to think about and the way that you presented in the book and, you know, being that I don't usually study 20th century history. And so it took me a little bit to kind of wrap my head around. But for me, the way you discuss the kind of differences between the local, the regional and the national um, in your book, and then you've kind of been talking about it just now as well. It really helps kind of, you know drive home how these sorts of concepts that are constructed, as you say, uh, just change so rapidly, like you said earlier, you know, just a couple hours in any direction.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, uh, as, as you said, the local regional and national play an important role in the book because part of what happened in Arkansas was that there was a the arrival of a new community, right? If we start with Latinos in the nineteen nineties, although in the book I start with Vietnamese in nineteen seventy five and Cuban refugees in the nineteen eighties. But if we start, if we focus on Latinos, there's a the arrival of Latinos in Arkansas in the nineteen nineties, and um, not only do I have my anecdotal evidence about standing in the lunch line and and the girl not knowing quote unquote, what I was, um, there's also a lot of evidence that I cite in the book in terms of newspapers and other sources that really demonstrate that our didn't really have a visual idea as to who Latinos were. Even as there's this national kind of anxiety about, quote unquote, illegal aliens, and you see some of this also in Arkansas, they didn't put the two and two together, The idea idea of illegal aliens being a threat and the real presence of Latinas and Latinos in their community, they didn't really understand that they were one and the same. And so I think that really speaks to the, the power of national discourses that we have about who is threatening, what communities are threatening, what's changing, uh, or what's in danger of changing nationally, and that intersects locally with um, neighbors that move in who are a little exotic who speak this different language, but now you have some interesting food or now you are learning um, how to count in how to count to ten in spanish and so i I was really interested in understanding that transformation of how local people and politicians and Arkansans essentially learned how to racialize Latinos in particular ways. And by racialize, I mean how to assign certain racial meanings to who they are, right? How did Latinos go from being um, thought of perhaps as exotic birds of passage, these like interesting kind of odd, maybe exotic people uh, who you could learn A little something from to these dangerous people, uh, these people you have to protect yourself from, these people that are sending their kids to school, these people that are um, living on the on the north side of town and all the all the negative connotations that go along with with those ideas.
1: Yeah, I mean it's just a it's just a fascinating process to read about, and I know it makes me again think of like my own upbringing and everything because where I'm from in Roanoke, Virginia, um, I'm not sure how it is these days. I know it, the population was growing uh, steadily as I was growing up, but for for a while, it always at least seemed um, as if there wasn't a very large uh, Latinx population uh, in the city. You know, as I said, you know myself being. Half black, half white. You know, I'm sort of light skinned. You know what you might expect from someone uh, if you were to just have an image in your mind. You know, and you know I'm racialized as black, and you know it made me think of just not only just that process, but also the way in which you know discourses that are aren't even necessarily overtly racist kind of make you racialize groups. Because I know when I moved up here, you know, I really had to like completely rethink um the way I thought about Latinx people because you know I I pretty much, you know, the way we were taught in school and everything was yeah, kind of generic moniker of Mexican that isn't really even Mexican because it's just supposed to represent Latino people as a whole. And it's just it's a fascinating thing to read your book and see that happening kind of like in real time, um, on such a kind of both a local but also a larger scale.
0: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean and you and you mentioned something that's really important that I also touch upon in the book and and that is the the flattening of difference, right? So Mexicans, not just in Arkansas, but as as you said in Virginia, nationally really Mexican is used as a stand-in for Latinos. All Latinos in the United States um can be conflated with Mexicans. And in the case um, in the case in Arkansas in the 1990s, that conflation went one step further, which was to assume that all Mexicans then were so-called illegal aliens, right? That they were all undocumented, that they were all foreigners, that they were all working poor. And so this is the power of racialization, that you take ideas, some of which are imagined nationally or constructed nationally, and then you draw from those ideas to make sense of of a new group in your town um and uh Natalia Molina has a book um on what and on on this phenomenon which she calls racial scripts but um that idea again that you take these national imaginings and you draw from those to construct people locally in particular ways is really powerful right so then in arkansas what happened is that latinos were constructed as mexicans and then construct it as illegal aliens. And if you're an illegal alien, then you're assumed to be a criminal. You're assumed to be a lawbreaker. You're assumed to be uh, essentially someone who is not a good person, who is not going to contribute to community. And so then that idea is used to uh, legitimate uh, the criminalization of a community, right. To say, oh, look, they're living in overcrowded housing. Oh, look, um, they're breaking the law. Even, even though the reality was people by and large were not doing that. They were not breaking laws. They were not living in overcrowded housing. Um, they were living maybe in working class apartments. And all of a sudden you have a change from people that look one way to people who look another way and because they stand out from the from the local area then they're they're cast as as being dangerous and threatening Um, the other thing that i think was really powerful in arkansas and actually i think uh quite telling about this process is that latinos then were also constructed even if they were not breaking any laws or social norms. They were constructors having uh, essentially broken a social contract. Like people, Arkansans would complain about Latinos being out in public spaces and about Latinos being out in parks and about the fact that they were hanging out in their front yards as opposed to their backyards like normal people. Um, those kinds of attacks were not, again, were not about breaking laws. They were really... Um, just complaints about people that look different that were maybe breaking social norms in terms of not hanging out in the front yard. Um, But they also reached a peak where Arkansans would complain about Latinos being in public parks when public parks are precisely the thing Uh, That you're supposed to use as a public, right? You're supposed to take your family to the park, you're supposed to take your kids to play uh, a sport. Maybe they're not playing football, maybe they're playing soccer. Um, But you're still really living part of this American dream. And yet, because you're brown, or because you are not imagined to be from that place, you're, you're cast as an outsider and your cast is dangerous and people, people essentially don't want to see you. And, and in the book, I, I, I cite several sources and several people saying, I wouldn't mind if Latinos were here, but you see them everywhere. If only they were inside their houses, like then I wouldn't mind. So then our Kansas were essentially saying, I don't mind that they're here as long as I never see them.
1: And so if we're thinking about, you know, how all of this kind of starts and everything like that, because you say, you know, you could think about this going on in the nineties, but you start your book earlier than that, which is uh, very interesting for me because you it allows you to really talk about a larger movement going on. And so when the kind of demographics start to change in Arkansas, what sort of factors are, you know, leading that change and kind of pushing it?
0: yeah so um, this is one of the other links to uh between the nuevo South and the new south so um again in in the in earlier time periods uh Southerners have complained about the the federal government intervening and imposing these laws and changing things, and essentially, what happened in Arkansas in the twentieth century was an extension of that um Fort Chaffee, which is located right outside of the city of Fort Smith. Uh, Fort Chaffee was used as a refugee processing center in 1975 and and in 1980 uh, to process uh, Vietnamese and then to process Cubans. It was not a choice that was um, supported by Arkansan politicians, but it's not one where they had a lot of power to tell the federal government, no, you can't use Fort Chaffee for this purpose. So in both instances, much to their chagrin, uh, the federal government decided to use Fort Chaffee to process refugees. Now, in 1975, um, there was a lot it was a very contentious moment in the United States. Uh, the United States had just lost the war in Vietnam, this um, intervention in, in Southeast Asia. It, in, it invested a lot of money. Uh, a lot of young men and women died fighting this war. And feelings were very intense. Um, because the United States had invested so much money and time and effort into this endeavor, There were a lot of people who were very supportive of uh, welcoming Vietnamese and other Southeast Asian allies. So people who helped us over there, who were translators, etc. And so you have that general kind of idea of we owe our allies something for helping us. But then that meets the local chagrin and resistance and sometimes anger of Arkansans that said, why do we have to be the ones that bear this burden? Um, And despite all this, despite those tensions, uh, Arkansans really kind of acquiesce and are like, "Okay, well, this is kind of our duty. We have a duty to um to our allies and our Christian teachings tell us that we need to welcome uh our brethren our brethren and um we'll do the best that we can so um Arkansans actually again kind of begrudgingly did um welcome vietnamese to a certain extent although um, maybe later on we can talk a little bit about uh yellow peril this idea that um Vietnamese were poor and uh, people who had disease. And it's, a, it's a, an Asian-specific um, racialized sphere. But despite that, Arkansans did agree to sponsor Vietnamese. Uh, I don't remember the exact number. I think it was um, more than 50,000 Vietnamese refugees were processed through Fort Chaffee. Uh, at some point, about 26,000 Vietnamese lived in the camp. And in the end, Arkansas sponsored a, a little over 2,000 refugees to the state of Arkansas. Now that stands in contrast to the experiences of Cubans. Only five years later, uh, Cubans again are are were fleeing um, another communist country. Uh, in this case, Cuba. This is a moment in which there's still a lot of anti-communist sentiment in the United States. Um, but, uh, this cohort in 1980 stands in contrast to two prior cohorts of Cubans. Um, the first two cohorts of Cubans were largely, uh, educated, overwhelmingly white, um, the elite and, uh, business owners. So there are people, the first two cohorts had resources they had connections to the United States. This third cohort in 1980 were largely working poor, largely Afro-Cuban. And had grown up under communism. And the other thing that happened that really cast this group as dangerous was that um, Fidel Castro himself said he had opened up his prisons and he had let the drags of Cuba go. And, you know, United States, if you want them, you can have them. And so... When the Cuban um, cohort arrived on U.S. shores, they were put into processing camps. But for them, this was very different. None of the the, uh, the two prior cohorts of Cubans had not been processed through camps the way Cubans for, from the port of Mariel were. They didn't understand what was happening. They didn't understand why the United States was holding them behind these uh, barbed wires, and essentially there was this racialized fear that they were criminals and communists and homosexuals. This was also a moment in which the U.S. immigration policy um, could still use homosexuality as a reason to exclude somebody from entering, but homosexuality was also one of the ways in which people could get out of Cuba. So there were reports that, that Cuban men in particular would either play up their homosexuality or would pretend they were gay in order to, to be given what was called a drag letter, which was a letter from Cuba saying, we don't want you. You're the worst. Um, and so all these things are happening in Arkansas and Arkansans are freaking out. Again, Cubans are really, uh, anxious about being held and they organize and they, they storm a perimeter. And this causes a lot of, Racialized fear in in Arkansas. Uh, then Governor Clinton calls the National Guard to to contain this group of people. Although, again, in my book, I, I write extensively about this. Um, a military official compared that 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 breaking of the perimeter to a college panty raid. Um, not appropriate. Uh, not an ap- appropriate expression for our current moment. But wh- what he was trying to say is these folks were just um taking a run they weren't gonna attack anybody but arkansans freaked out and again uh governor clinton called the national guard and people were convinced that cubans were yelling come on castro let's kill some americans which is highly unlikely given that again this court wasn't college-educated Highly improbable they were bilingual, um, and so you have these moments of both Vietnamese and Cubans only five years apart in the same, in literally in the same place, and the receptions by our cantons and by the national, um, by the by the nation more broadly are are um, light years apart. And um, in the book, I talk more about why that is and the issues around race and class and other racialized anxieties.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's honestly just a really fascinating thing to read uh, and learn about, because, you know, I guess, you know, my own kind of ignorance of, you know, Arkansas history, and then you obviously kind of have preconceived notions of what the South is, you know, one just kind of living there and everything like that. You know, you read about Vietnamese people coming to, you know, somewhere like Arkansas, and you kind of, I think most people might think automatically that they might not be completely welcomed. And so the kind of history behind that, and then the differences between that and Cubans, even though, as you say, in reality, the kind of international uh, situation that is putting them, uh, having them kind of flee to America is very much similar. Uh, the reaction by people in, in Arkansas is so different. And then as you kind of hinted at earlier, even with the Vietnamese, you know, you, they still have to deal with kind of very Asian specific, you know, uh, racism with the uh, yellow peril.
0: Yes. So, um, yeah, the reaction is different in Arkansas. And again, in the book, I talk more about this. But uh, one important thing to note is that the reaction wasn't just because these two groups uh, were different. The reaction also has to do with um, Northwest Arkansas's own history. Um Again, when I started telling people that I was writing about Latinos in Arkansas or Vietnamese in Arkansas, they would ask me, "Oh, you know, what 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 um what does the black community say? What are black Asian relations like? What are black Latino re- relations like?" And I realized as I was starting um to revise the book that the the state of Arkansas again as part of the the South is imagined to be a binary, black and white. And of course, we should note that in this in this imagination, we always erase Native people, Native Americans. But within this this racial binary of black and white, um, Arkansas, Northwest Arkansas in particular doesn't doesn't stand up to that. So if you imagine Arkansas as a kind of a rectangle and you divide it into four quadrants, I'm writing about the Northwest quadrant now. Uh, in the 1980s, 1990s, this was the third congressional district. And this this matters, of course, for voting and other things, but you can imagine it as a quadrant. The other three quadrants in Arkansas had between 100,000 and 160,000 African-Americans. But the quadrant I'm writing about had only 10,000 African-Americans. Uh, many of those were uh, were living in one county in one city in the city of fort smith um and then the other 20 percent lived in another county in another city uh, which was Fayetteville, home to the university of arkansas and so you have to imagine the northwest quadrant as an overwhelmingly white place in the through through the 1970s and 1980s because Arkansas essentially shut down Uh, for Chaffee. They didn't sponsor Cubans the way they had sponsored Vietnamese. I think only about 400 or 400 Cubans were sponsored. And given the anti-Black racism they experienced, many of them left uh, fairly quickly. So Northwest Arkansas remained overwhelmingly white through the 1990s until Latinos start moving there. But what's even perhaps more important than that is the fact that it had not always been overwhelmingly white. There were Black communities that existed in Arkansas at the beginning of the 20th century. And so in the book, I, I write about the longer history and, and particularly incidents of anti-Black racial violence in 1905 and 1908 um, that essentially serve as an excuse for... Um, there, there are incidents that serve as an excuse for white people to, to kill Black people to run them from their homes, to run them from the county. Again, one instance happened in 1905, and then it happens again in 1908. And essentially, um, this is a way that, as another scholar put it, this part of Arkansas becomes white man's heaven, right? There's a removal of Black communities. And this this is something that happens not just in Arkansas, but there's a whole part of the United States, there's a whole swath from um, from Northwest Arkansas to Southeast Missouri, where this racial cleansing occurred in the early 20th century, that really has long lasting consequences for those counties, those cities, those towns, and certainly the people of color that came after, um, after to make homes in, in Arkansas
1: and in terms of you know getting to say the 1990s like you uh like you've mentioned before in terms of how uh largely mexican migrants come to the area one of the things that i found very interesting both in terms of you know just like you wouldn't i you wouldn't necessarily expect it because you might not just know that it's there um and then just also like kind of reading about how you went about having to research this and talking to people is Tyson, the chicken company um, and how they play such a big role in this story, particularly when it comes to Mexican migrants um, in the area uh, from the 1990s on. And so can you, can you talk about how, you know, this one company uh, kind of really influences both the kind of migration of largely mexican migrants and their racialization in the area
0: Mm -hmm. yeah thank you thanks so much for that question so um yeah in the 1990s latinos there are a couple of things that that happen that facilitate the migration of latinos to arkansas one is uh there's a there's a recession happening in california that hits california very hard a lot of people lose their, their jobs uh and so Hundreds of thousands of people are looking for jobs, um, and at this very moment in Arkansas, or at that very moment in Arkansas, the poultry industry was was essentially trying to grow, uh, and so there's as as in many other cases, there's a sojourner. There's like somebody who goes out to explore, um, and so somebody in a network, in an in a family network or an immigrant uh network, uh ended up in Arkansas and told a friend who told a friend who told a brother um that there were plenty of jobs in Arkansas in what Latinos called or called polleras, meaning the poultry industry. And so it's like a game of telephone, right? Like Again, a friend tells a friend, tells a cousin, tells his brother and um that's the way my family learned about this opportunity. My godfather called my my dad to tell him, "Hey, there're plenty of jobs, come work in in Apoyera." My dad didn't know what that meant until he eventually got to Arkansas and he was like, "Oh, it's we're plucking chickens. This is this is what we're doing." Um so there was work in the poultry industry. There was uh a low cost of living um I think a one bedroom apartment in Arkansas in 1996 was about $230 when a studio apartment in suburban LA was going for about $600. So there was a a dramatic, um, shift in, in terms of how much, uh, rent would be. Um, and and yeah, so the poultry industry becomes this uh this is this magnet for the migration of Latinos. And in my case, uh I didn't find that Tyson uh itself went to pick up people, although other scholars have found that sometimes poultry uh, the poultry industry would literally hire a driver to go pick up workers in Texas or sometime, or in the case of Tyson in another instance to go hire people in Mexico and bring them across the border, um, to work in a Tyson plant. In my case, that was, that was not what I found. It was through immigrant social networks and this telephone that people said, okay, like there are opportunities in Arkansas. It's quiet. It's tranquil. It's green. Uh, let's go. And so, the poultry industry became the like the industry in Northwest Arkansas in which a lot of Latinos first worked. Um, and another scholar by the name of Steve Striffler has a um, has a quote that I, that I always like to say, and he says that the role of chicken cannot be underestimated in in the diversification of the U.S. South. Right, and when you when you imagine that, it seems pretty hilarious, right? How can how can chicken be so important, but Um, Latino labor power really allowed the poultry industry to to grow despite initial complaints um, by some people or um, then um, INS, Immigration and Naturalization Services, uh, sometimes conducting raids like Operation Southpaw and, and saying, we're protecting American jobs. The poultry industry would say I don't know what you're talking about. We had jobs available before the raid. We have jobs available now. Other people don't want to do this work. You know, what are are you doing? Um, And so the poultry industry becomes essentially... Um, One of the things that really diversifies the U.S. South, that really diversifies Arkansas in particular, um, there's a dynamic growth of the poultry industry in the 1990s. Um, This also coincides with other changes in the industry like vertical integration um, and a general anti-union sentiment in the South that makes it appealing for uh, other meat packers to, to relocate to. And so poultry, swine, um, landscaping, and construction are some of the key areas, key industries that really facilitated the growth of Latinos in in the region. Um, uh, Post-Katrina rebuilding, New Orleans, Latinos had a lot to do with that. Uh, I I want to mention, though, that, that it isn't just because Latinos are such good workers. Um, it's often because Latinos, some of whom are undocumented, are more exploitable as a labor force, and because they're more exploitable, because especially if they're undocumented, um, uh, bosses will threaten them with calling immigration, naturalization, or what is it now ICE uh, to get them to get them removed. And so that's the way that employers can have a more controllable labor force, right? A more malleable labor force. And so uh, in Katrina, what happened is that um, Latinos were hired instead of African-Americans or white workers who often belonged to unions, right? Latinos were not, uh, not in unions. If they weren't documented, they had uh more vulnerability in terms of the way they were treated at work um we have a similar instance uh in arkansas a similar uh instance in uh north carolina with um, the development of the research triangle and a construction boom. And so you can, you can almost go from place to place in different, in different parts of the US South mm-hmm. to, to look at the local economy and look at what's booming and see that Latino labor power and their exploitation as particular kinds of laborers really facilitated the growth, the economic growth of the region.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I know I was reading your book uh, at about the same time, and I'm I'm drawing a blank on what the where it was in the particular industry that the plant was uh, specializing in. But when news broke that uh, I think it was like a plant that was associated with the Koch brothers had called ICE on hundreds of its own employees after they had tried to unionize Mississippi. Yes, Um, and I was thinking of how. How, you know, in reality, you know, the, these uh, this process of racialization, um, both on a local, regional, national level, it never kind of ends and everything like that. And kind of similarities between, you know, that uh, horrible incident and, you know, what you talk about uh, in your book and what you were just talking about just now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the case in Mississippi is is really emblematic of um a particular kind of intensification. So um, for those who don't know the case in Mississippi, I'm forgetting on the specific town. But um, if you look up Mississippi radio, you'll, you'll find it. Um, the, the laborers there had just won a labor dispute with their employer. And, you know, it's like, oh, a week or two after they win this, this agreement or the settlement, there's a raid at at their place of employment. Oh, what a coincidence. Shocking. Um, But unfortunately, this is one of the ways in which the vulnerability of Latino workers is experienced, right? So even if you yourself are not undocumented, um, the disruption to your life, the fear of of whether you're actually going to get, whether they're actually going to take you in because they don't believe that you are a US born citizen or a naturalized citizen, or if you, or if your partner's undocumented, right? And both of you work in a plant that is that is raided, what's going to happen to your kids? So there, there are so many uh, repercussions and so many um, ripple effects to using raids as a way to to discipline or to punish workers that are fighting for their rights. And uh, in Arkansas, it was interesting in the 1990s, actually employers were sometimes uh, defending their employees. They were saying, look, we had jobs before and we have jobs now after a raid. Like, um, you know, you're really not doing the the, the job you think you're doing. Uh, and that happens, that happens, um, for several years, for several decades. Uh, and of course someone like Tyson constructs, um, the corporation as being a good corporate citizen. Like, oh, we participate in we verify. We participate, um, by, um, checking, checking their documentation to make sure that they're eligible to work in the United States. Um, uh we are offering english language classes so it really constructs itself as a good corporate citizen even as it's even as it's doing other things that um are not um are not good for the community in terms of the environment or not good for their own employees so something like migration and labor in uh, a new place, you can really see a lot of these different threads coming together in very particular ways that um that I think is useful for thinking about other other issues elsewhere.
1: And so I guess to wrap things up, you know, we have this amazing book in front of us. Uh, Again, it's called Nueva South Asians, Latinas and Latinos and the Remaking of Place. And, you know, hopefully our listeners are all going to go out and read and buy this book. You know, I think you really kind of illustrate today how pertinent these issues are and how wide ranging their consequences are. And so we have this in front of us. Uh, what can we expect from you in the future? What might you be working on right now?
0: Yeah, thanks thanks so much for that question. So I'm starting a second project um, that is tentatively titled Deportations Aftermath. And this is about uh, deportees and returnees to Mexico. So folks that were formally deported by the state uh, and folks who either chose to return or were forced to return to Mexico, so um, for example, uh, people who would make that choice would be undocumented people who grew up in the United States, they want to go to college, and they realize that unless they get a scholarship to a private university or they're independently wealthy and can pay for tuition out of po- for international tuition out of pocket, that they will have to um or that they might try going to study in Mexico. And so, uh, this, uh, this is an extension of the first book, right? The first book is really focused on place in terms of Arkansas. Um, this second book is going to focus on place in terms of Mexico, what happens upon their return, what are their experiences? Um, and, and also how, how are ideas that are created in the United States about who's a good immigrant and who's a bad immigrant about what dangerous people look like, how are those things enacted in Mexico? So for example, a lot of Mexicans who have not migrated to the United States think that deportees because they were removed by the United States are quote unquote criminals, that they broke the law, that they are dangerous. And so you see this reproduction of, um, what in the U.S. is racialization um, being reproduced in Mexico, right? This idea that, that people are dangerous or that they, um, or in sometimes if in the more quote unquote benign cases that people have failed because they're returning to their country of birth uh, without much to show for it, right? And so there's a lot of um, factors at play from gender, Um, the experiences between men and women to generation. So when I first started this project, I thought that um, migrants who had left Mexico when they were, let's say, in their early 20s and returned or deported in their 40s would have an easier time adjusting to Mexico because they know the language, they know the culture, et cetera. But I'm wrong. I've started conducting field work and they have a really hard time. Actually, it's younger people who... Um, have a hard, uh, have an easier time finding work. And in Mexico, the reason for that is because there's a lot of age discrimination. So folks who return at 40 um, often cannot get jobs, even as bus boys. So you have jobs from bus boys to dentists, to everything else saying you have to be 35 years or younger. And so what do you do when you are 40? Um, you no longer have a work history in your country. Sure. You speak the language. But now you haven't been in this social setting in two decades and you have these American ideas about getting paid for overtime and getting paid a particular kind of wage for doing a particular kind of work. And um, there, there are a lot of factors at play upon the return that are very much anchored in the both U.S. experiences, but also U.S. laws in terms of who gets deported and why.
1: Well, just that little snippet there sounds extremely interesting. And I know I, for one, would be very interested in reading that when it eventually comes out. And I'm sure we will have you right back on the program to speak about that book when it does uh, come out. But in any case, uh, thank you very much for coming on to the program today.
0: Thank you so much, Derek. Thanks for having me.